To me, a very important part of social equality has always been racial justice. It's always bothered me that some people are looked at in a negative way just because their skin is a different color. Obviously, we've come a long way since the days of slavery, lynchings, and segregation. However, a completely racist country versus a not racist country is not all black and white. To, see, it, so, to some people, it seems like a country is either experiencing apartheid-level racism or racism is not a problem at all. But this is not the case. There is a gray area, especially in this country. Now, the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which a lot of you have probably read, brings to light just how biased the justice system can be, even today, against people of color, especially in the South and against those of them who are poor. The book mainly follows the story of Walter McMillan, an African-American man who was wrongly convicted of murder and put on death row. The crazy thing, though, was just how much the evidence in the original trial pointed to him being not guilty. Many people from his community testified that he had been miles away at the time the murder took place. The stories that the prosecution witnesses told did not line up. And yet an all-white jury found him guilty and he was sentenced to death. After six years on death row, he was finally released due to the tireless work by Stevenson and a couple of other lawyers to earn a retrial that was much more fair. However, this time on death row took a permanent toll on his mental health and he would later suffer from severe dementia. All that when he didn't even do anything. Just Mercy also highlights the fact that black and Hispanic as well as poor white teenagers are being sentenced to life imprisonment without parole for crimes that would not deserve such a punishment even in adult cases. One of these teenagers had accidentally burned her boyfriend's house down. Another was convicted of rape with minimal evidence once again and also got life. Racism is different than it used to be. When things like segregation and lynching happened, that was called overt racism, or racism that is obvious and openly discriminatory. That kind of racism was easier to fix with laws. However, the kind we deal with today is called covert racism, and that's the more subtle racism we see. Examples would be seeing a man of color walking down the street and feeling frightened, or judges and juries being tougher on African Americans as well as Hispanics. These are also discriminatory, but they don't break any laws, so they're harder to fix. The obvious question, then, is how do we fix such a problem? How do we change the subtle biases that society has against an entire group of people just because of the color of their skin? Well, there's things we can all do. For starters, learn more about these situations, either by reading or on TV. I've already recommended one book that I can testify is fantastic. Also, go out and vote for candidates who you believe will try and make things more fair. As worship associate last November, I discussed how even one vote can still make a difference. Volunteer to help run a voter registration stand, which gives more people, especially minorities, more of a chance for their voices to be heard. Because a lot of the reason that a higher percentage of poor minorities do not vote is because 
they don't really have access to a way to register. This would help solve that problem. And finally, this may be the most difficult of all, don't be afraid to call people out for saying racist things. Because no matter how minor it may seem, it feeds the negative stereotypes that the person saying it, as well as the people hearing it, have in their minds. I've heard racial slurs at school, not even directed at an African-American or any other racial minority, just one white guy saying it to another, which is just so ignorant, and I regret not calling them out on it. I should have, and I will try to if presented with the same situation in the future. This and more is what we can all do to raise awareness of and stop covert racism in its tracks. This is a civilized nation, and it's time we all started acting like it. Now, please remain seated as we sing the first verse of hymn number 121, We'll Build a Land. Social justice and environmental conservation are of great value in our community, but are often separated as two different subjects. Take a closer look, however, and we see the issues overlap in some crucial ways, revealing that protecting the environment is, in fact, compatible with social justice. Environmental discrimination can be defined as the unfair and unequal placement of toxic waste sites, such as landfills, factories, and incinerators, in or nearby minority and or underprivileged communities who do not have the power or means to retaliate against big corporations. Higher income communities reap greater benefits than lower income communities who have the burden of waste, transportation, and manufacturing facilities that higher income populations do not. These lower income areas are thereby exposed to the toxicity of pollutants they are inconvenienced with, promoting disabilities and health problems such as asthma and obesity. As the tier of society with the smallest amount of power, the underprivileged dis districts are largely unable to control the laws and regulations protecting them with little to no representation in local politics to support a change. Large amounts of stress are induced by the higher concentration of environmental burdens on lower income neighborhoods accompanied by the lack of access to environmental benefits. The stress is enhanced by the tendency for an impoverished society to have more rigorous yet lower income jobs unsafe living conditions, and health issues due to the inability to pay for higher quality groceries. These health issues may be accented by the lack of green spaces that the mind and body require to remain in good physical shape. Real-life examples of this atrocity come by the dozens, but one strikes me in particular, reaching to me all the way from the West Grove community in Miami, Florida, a largely African-American community in the 1960s. From 1925 to 1970, these predominantly poor citizens were affected by an electricity-producing trash incinerator nicknamed Old Smokey, from which the surrounding African-American population got no service. In a New York Times article, former resident Elaine Taylor recalls running home to escape ash falling from the skies. An estimated average of a ton of soot was produced each day by this incinerator. Health problems rose in the overall populations, and disabilities in children were exponentially increasing. Old Smokey was addressed as a public nuisance by officials, but despite this acknowledgement, the project was expanded in 1961. Officials only started to take interest once the pollution began affecting surrounding predominantly white neighborhoods who were active in legal battles to close the incinerator. African-American communities remained largely disregarded. 
A far more recent controversy relevant to the protection of our environment you should all be informed of is the Dakota Access Pipeline protest. The community overseeing the $3.8 billion project's blatant disregard for the Standing Rock Sioux tribe's cultural sites and health threats, especially to the tribe's source of drinking water, sparked a nationwide outcry. The pipeline's purpose was to transfer crude oil from domestic wells to American consumers. However, the smallest leak in this pipeline could contaminate the entire tribe's drinking supply. Over 3,300 leaks had happened since 2010 during the peak of the protests, putting the odds of contamination at almost certain. The energy transfer partners' lack of compassion towards these tribes and urgency to move forward with the plan disturbed the American population, provoking outrage. The center of action remained at the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in North and South Dakota, where unnecessarily brutal police force was meant to frighten protesters into submission. Photo evidence litters the internet to this day, reminding us of the crimes committed against the land and its people. These issues interfere with the morals that most of us here at U have about keeping a clean and healthy earth, but they also go against the U principles on the inherent worth and dignity of every person. To begin repairing the damage done by us as humans against other humans and against our one and only earth, I invite you to take steps to end environmental discrimination and bring justice to our world. You can do so by simply educating yourself on the subject at hand and getting involved in your community to influence local politics in a positive way. Attending protests and signing petitions are other impactful actions you could possibly make for environmental justice. Never for one minute think that you don't have a say in what happens in your world. Make connections and utilize them. Spread word of important current events that may be overlooked. Make it known that environmental injustice is a very real threat in our communities. You have a voice. If you want to be heard, then scream. Please remain seated as we sing verse 3 of We'll Build the Land. Turkeys know their names, come when you call, are totally affectionate, they're better than teenagers. <laughs> Vampires and teens have a lot in common. Teens have surging hormones. Vampires have surging bloodlust. Teenagers think they're immortal. Teenagers only have to focus on themselves. It's not until we get older that we realize that other people exist. These are all real quotes from credible adults about teens today. Adults have always been quick to stereotype and ridicule teenagers. Dumbing them down to a, to a jumble of hormones with antisocial and selfish tendencies. But here's the deal all adults have been teenagers. <laughs> They've all had teenage experiences and emotions. So, why do so many of them belittle today's youth? Is it because they look back on their younger selves with embarrassment? Do they think, now that my being has finished developing, I can just disregard everything I thought and did during those years when it was. Are my thoughts and beliefs invalid because my hormones are overactive sometimes? I urge you to think like a teenager for a moment. You're going through very important changes, mentally and physically. You're on the very, very stressful road to college, which we start preparing for earlier than ever before. Like, seriously, they had college preparation meetings in sixth grade at my middle school. Sixth grade. That's crazy. You've got after-school activities and ambitions and goals you're juggling as well. 
You're going through all of this madness, and suddenly the adults in power are doing things to your country you are appalled by. They elect an unstable leader who doesn't care about you, who then appoints more people who don't care about you. You see your country as a mess over all these teenage things you have to deal with. You don't feel safe. You feel silenced with no voice in society to speak your mind. And when you do speak up, lots of adults don't listen. What would you do if you saw kids like you getting shot and killed in the schools they were supposed to be safe in, and the adults in power were doing nothing about it? What would you do if you saw kids like you being discriminated against in schools and beaten and abandoned by their parents for being gay or trans? What if you saw kids like you isolated and alone because their parents were ripped from their home, deported to the unsafe place they had run from? These kids are my friends. They are my brothers and sisters across the nation. They are the girl who lives across the street, the kid working the drive through window, the boy you tutored last year. They are sons and daughters and nieces and nephews and you once. These kids have real problems, valid feelings. So people need to stop telling us to sit down and shut up and let the adults handle it, because clearly that doesn't always work. And we can't vote, so we take any chance we get to make our voices heard by those in power. But being heard is different from being listened to. Still, these hormonal teenagers have sparked movements throughout history. During the Vietnam War, students protested violence. Students during the Civil Rights Movement walked out of schools to protest for voting rights for blacks. Teenage girls marched for votes for women. Young people like me have been protesting relentlessly for a very, very long time. And some of you might have been those same young people marching out on the streets for the issues that you were passionate about. Just as teens have protested, adults have always belittled their opinions. I don't think adults should lose that fiery spirit as they get older. And they definitely shouldn't try to snuff out the flames of the young, because it's not going to work. And it never has worked. So yes, we are hormonal, and sometimes irrational, and sometimes antisocial, and stubborn, and a little bit selfish sometimes. But that shouldn't distract from the fact that we are passionate and intelligent social activists and have continued to fight for justice in ways adults have often failed to do. Emma Gonzalez, who you all hopefully know, um, said to NRA spokesperson Dana Loesch, I want you to know that we will support your two children in the way that you will not. Teenage activists have always questioned authority, unafraid of being arrested or tear-gassed or being called a skinhead lesbian. <laughs> to close, I ask that you respect the opinions and recognize the worth of, of teenage protesters, despite whether you agree with their standpoint or not. Also, with all the turmoil in this country right now, I suggest you think like a teenager. Be stubborn, annoying, rebellious, and relentless, because we need your help to make change. Please remain seated as we sing verse 4 of hymn number 121.
For those of you who don't know me, my name is Claudia Cruy. I've been coming to the UUC with my family for a while now. And I'm going to be completely honest, at first I didn't want to come here because I've been to church before and it just didn't interest me at all. So naturally, I thought this place was going to be the same. But when I finally came here and listened to what people had to say, I was fascinated with the people and the topics. The UUC isn't a place where I sit and can't wait to leave. It's a place where I want to stay and talk to people with different stories and backgrounds. This place expanded my thinking, and the team group is the best, has been the best place for me to grow in. I've never been in a group where everyone is so curious and fun to be around. Everyone in the group is beautiful, and we all have our strengths, and we build each other up. We all also have different views, and it's amazing to hear everyone's opinion, even if we don't agree, because we know that we will always support each other. Honestly, my favorite part is check-in. We all talk about how we've been, and everyone cares, especially Mr. Charles. It's an environment where I feel safe, and that means a lot to me because last year I had a rough time in school with bullying. I definitely feel like this place has made a difference in my life, and it's a place where I want to be. To support experiences like this and to support the work of this congregation, the offering will be greatly received. So we've got a few minutes. I want to invite our three uh, speakers this morning, uh, Joey, Fiona, and Cole, to come forward. And all three of them, as you can see from the picture under order of service, read the recent March for Our Lives in D.C. And I want to invite them to each uh, share a little about what it meant for them to be there and just to share some reflections back to uh, this congregation. So did all of you see pictures from the March of Our Lives? Yay, awesome. So it was huge. It was like massive, and I'd never seen anything like it. And if you were somewhere in the middle, you could look behind you and not see the end of the crowd. And that was incredible. Like, whoa, there's so many people here supporting this cause. And what was even more incredible was that it wasn't just like one group of people. It was people from all walks of life, all places. People came in from all over the place. People came in. I saw there was, if you got the March for Our Lives like app thing, people were posting like where they were coming from. There were people coming from like Canada. I was like, whoa, you have the time and money to come here for one day? Like, wow. But that was really incredible to see all of these people from different walks of life out protesting for the same cause. Because... It, it really dumbs down to the fact that bullets don't discriminate. And guns have one purpose, and that is to kill and end lives. And it doesn't matter whose... It, well, it does matter whose life it was. But it could be anyone. It could be anyone you know who's dying from gun violence. So it was just incredible to see all these people here working towards a better and safer world for all of us. Um, I agree with Joey that there's power in numbers. There could be one person that believes in something, but if there are 800,000 people that believe the same thing all together in one place, that's even more powerful. And there's this quote that I really like. Um, what was It was that the power of the people can overcome the people in power, and I really like that. And I think that really kind of reflected what happened at the march um 
that there were so many people, like you said, you could look back and you would not see the end of it. It was just like a sea of people who were all there to support this change that is really important for us, I think. I thought it was just like really cool how like Joey said there were people from like everywhere coming to this one place with this one idea that they're all trying to like push out there and like all these like chants that were going on like this is just one idea that all these people are so in favor of and it was it was cool. And I don't we'd never seen anything like that I don't think. I mean, have you guys seen anything like that before? <laughs> But what was especially cool was that it was almost 100% student-run, and all of the speakers were students. I think they were all under 19, under 19, or 20. But that was really, really cool. And it was inspiring because you would think, well, if if these kids can come out and speak their minds so bravely and courageously, then anyone can go out and do something for... A bet to create a better world. So I hope that seeing, at least either being to, at the March for Our Lives or seeing pictures from it will inspire all of you guys to go out and like do something. Do something for justice. And it can be something small, but making a post on Facebook or Instagram is not going to do anything. So volunteer somewhere. Donate money if you have any. Um, donate time. Like, just do something because we're not going to make change if we can't all be there to help. So, thank you. Yeah, I shared in the first service as well. Some of you may know the term slacktivism. You know, there's activism and there's slacktivism. And slacktivism sort of can make you feel like you've done something when you haven't really done anything. And, and activism tries to get to how do you actually leverage power and win and advance the values that you're advocating for. And, and, and certainly I think social media is a part of that. That's part of how the March for Our Lives came together. But then as Joey, I think, and others were rightly saying, there, there's next steps about uh, using that coalition that you've built to register people to vote, to get them to the polls, to run for office. That there, there's, there's, there are next steps that are the, the leverage power and win part. I want to open it up further, including to other members of the youth group. We have just a few minutes, a few moments really, for um, just raise your hand. I'll come to you if you have something that's really stood out to you today. To those young people who have come here and led, get used to that. We need you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, Dave, and especially and um, looking at the March for Our Lives, for those of you who were there, I think I'm right about this roughly. It started about eight minutes late and ended about ten minutes early. That's for that's incredibly impressive for, and I mean, I've been to a lot of things like that that did not, it ran incredibly smoothly. Everyone was on point. Every speaker was incredibly moving and meaningful. It was, I agree with you. I saw Ben. Thank you. Um, first off, I'm just, I'm so proud of you all, and I'm I'm so glad that you allowed me to help you today. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about having attended the march, and you know, I, I appreciate that Joey pointed out that students and young people have been at the forefront of progressive movements for decades, but where I think this generation is really special and is really getting it is the idea of intersectionality, and that 
if you saw the speeches at the march, that there were, first off, they were checking their own privilege constantly and about how the reason that they were getting such attention was that they were from an affluent, largely white neighborhood in Florida, and that because of that, they brought, you know, African Americans and people from inner cities and people from different socioeconomic uh, groups and made the point that this is, you know, that there is an intersectionality between these various groups and that one person's fight is every person's fight and that, you know, if, and that gun control also in, impacts racism and impacts socioeconomic issues and that, you know, we can't just isolate ourselves. And I think, you know, this generation is really going to lead us and is going to point us in the right way. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, that, that how do we work not in competing oppressions, but in coalitions for collective liberation? Absolutely. Final comment? Yeah, Pinnock, we'll let you have the last word before the benediction. I just read a report or a news item on a report that has just come out, not from the Department of Education, but from another governmental agency that points out that the majority of disciplinary actions in our school system are against African Americans and people with disabilities of all types. And I sit here listening to these teens. If we can survive the next three years, there is hope. I agree, and some of them can vote in November, so there's hope. So as we continue to work on the systemic level, don't forget also to, to see what can you do in your daily life, that as you go from here and the next person you encounter after you leave this building and this property and the next, that how can you also affect change on that level to continue your journey with love, to care for one another, to care for this one earth, to do justice, to make peace, and that as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, of joy, that goes with you out from the world. We're different for having spent this time together. We're having listened to these young people. Um, So take that with you. Uh, May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.